0: Let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 51. We're looking at Isaiah 51, and for the sake of time, I'm only going to be looking at uh, the first 16 verses. And so if you're new today, or you haven't been here um, in some time, you uh, may not know that we're going through Revelation. And so we're pausing that, but the passage that we're looking at today does have bearing on Revelation because there's some very similar themes and concepts. In fact, this actually dovetails with what Pastor John himself did just a few weeks ago when he looked at Isaiah 35. There's actually some strong parallels between Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 51. You think about these passages before us, very much like the book of Revelation, That God's people are on the way to the promised land, the city of God, Zion, longing for all of God's promises to come to final fulfillment. But along the way, there's the unexpected, there's the constant unexpected that tempts us and causes us to fear. I fear, and I imagine you have your own fears as well. And so, um, one of the reasons I wanted to look at Isaiah 50 as the backdrop of uh, today's passage, because just as with the revelation, a lot of the, um, fear that we face is because we're connected to Jesus. That's certainly a theme. Uh, We see the very outset of Revelation that people are suffering explicitly because of Jesus, their connection with Him. And so before we pray, just to remind ourselves of the backdrop of Isaiah 51, we saw in uh, our call to worship this person, this speaker, who we now know to be Jesus, says that God has equipped him to give a word of comfort to the weary. I'm weary in my own uh, ways today, as you are. But we're called, as we think about this servant we saw in our Declaration of Truth, our responsive reading, that there's that, that closing summons that uh, Isaiah says Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice? Of his servant, and so that that word "obey," that phrase "obey the voice," that can be translated as "listening to the voice." That's going to be important when we start out because Isaiah fifty-one begins with "listen." So there's a, a direct connection between these two chapters, and as we saw in the responsive reading, the uh, servant Jesus, he faces opposition, he faces suffering. And that's what we see in Revelation. We're going to see that today, that people are afraid in Isaiah 51 because of suffering and opposition. So there are connections that we'll look to um, consider along the way. So let's, let's pause again. And as we come to God's Word, let's, let's ask again for Him to bless His Word to us. Father, as we think about Jesus this morning, uh, we remember His prayer for us. In which he asked that you, Father, would sanctify us; that He would transform, you would transform us uh, by Your Word. You would sanctify us by uh, Your Word. And as He prayed that, Lord, we we think about that immediate context where His people were afraid when they saw what happened to Him, and we're thankful that He prays for us when we're afraid and when we are weary. And so, Lord, you've given us this word uh, specifically to speak to those who are weary and afraid. And, Lord, we come to you this morning as people who are afraid for a wide variety of reasons. And we're weary for a wide variety of reasons. And so, Lord, we turn to you. You're our only hope. And so, Lord, we thank you that we're not alone. Not only do we have Jesus, but, Lord, we have his Spirit And so we need him, Lord, to meet us in your word, to help us to understand it, to believe it, and to listen to obey the voice of your servant, Jesus. So, Lord, help me in my weakness. Lord, meet us in our weaknesses. And, uh, Lord, we look to you to do good things in our midst today for your glory. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great joys of my calling here at Chestnut Mountain is I I love hearing people's backstories, not only in in terms of how you came to know the Lord, but I love hearing how did the Lord bring you to our area. Certainly many of you here in our our church family have grown up in Georgia, maybe not in Hall County, but in various uh, parts of the state. Um. I've been here since 2005, and I do have family roots in Georgia, but I didn't come to Georgia for the first time until 1982. And this was a a great uh, day in my life. Our teacher, our sixth-grade teacher, small Christian school, uh, he announced that he was wanting to uh, put together a guy's trip. He wanted to take the guys in our class to a Braves game. And uh you know, this is years and years ago, 1982, and so um we set off. It was gonna be a noon game, it was gonna be the game of the week. It was gonna be televised. And so we were thrilled. No one in our class had ever been to Atlanta, we'd never been to Georgia, and we were looking forward to this great day. So we were about two hours away, and we met early at our school, and when we got there, we were all excited and we were getting ready to board the van and In the midst of all of our excitement and joy, our teacher said, all right, listen up. And so we knew that when we heard those words, he wasn't just calling us to hear sound, the sounds of his, the sound of his voice and his words. He was calling us to listen obediently. We were entrusted to his care and, uh, our parents did that and we were called when he would say, listen up. That was our time to be quiet. And to listen to him as we embark on this, this great trip of great joy set out in front of us. And so the day did not begin well when, not long after we left, the cloudy skies opened up on us and, um, we, as we got to Atlanta, it was, it was pouring. And for more than two hours, close to three, we sat through a rain delay. And as a result of that delay, of course, we were there at the park uh, much later. We were determined to sit through the whole game, and so we had a late supper. But on the way home, uh, the van that we were in began to smoke. big billowing uh, cloud of smoke came out from the front. And so, you know, remember back in 1982 that we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have a phone with us at all. And the exits we passed, there weren't that many options it was a dark highway at that point on I-85, and so uh, suddenly we were faced with the unexpected. And uh, our I don't remember all the details now, but I do know our teacher had to walk and leave us behind. He had to walk to make a phone call off one of the local exit. and it took a while. Of course, we locked the van, but it took a long time. So uh, the van had to be towed. We were eventually taken all—I think eight or nine of us—were all bunched up in, in the tow truck. We were taken to the nearest rest stop where we had to wait on our parents. And so there, in that rest stop, there was no one else around. Middle of the night, and yeah, there were there were street lamps, but they were very—it was a very dimly lit parking lot. So a lot of uncertainty and, and a lot of fear. And so throughout that whole ordeal, waiting, we would hear, all right, listen up. And so in the the middle of all of our fear and anxiety, we were, that our, our thoughts were cut through by His voice, saying, listen to me, trust me. We're going to get through this. And so as we... As we uh, set out that day, we left Greenville that morning, we were connected through one of our classmates named Barry. He he wanted very much to provide the van to take us to Atlanta because uh, parents weren't going to be able to go on, on the trip. And so our connection with him, this great provision, this second person in this trip, this great provision... This association with him caused us unexpected fear and delay. This great trip that we were longed for was met with fear. And so in the meantime, throughout that process, we were called to listen up. And that's what we have before us. We have issues in front of us that are far more important than going to a Braze game. We have eternal realities before us as we think about these things before us, we are faced daily, hourly in some cases, of, of things that threaten us, that frighten us, that, that tempt us to drown out that voice that says, listen to me, listen up. And so as we, we uh, come to this passage before us, the servant, as he calls us to listen to him, he's going to help us to deal with our fear In two ways. One, reflect on God's faithfulness in the past. And then also reflect on his promised faithfulness in the future. So as we're in these present moments of fear and crisis and doubt, in that present, we must look to the Lord and reflect on the past and the future because it's there in the present When we do that, when we oscillate between reflection on the past and the future, it's in that present, that present crisis, that God again meets us and shows his faithfulness. It's a past rich faithfulness that we can reflect on. And we have this future wonderful faithfulness to think about. And both those things come together in the midst of our present Yet our association with this servant is like my friend Barry. Our our connection with him, this great provision that he's made for us, it it brings up unexpected fear and what seems to us like delay, but all along there's someone saying, listen, listen up, I've got this. It's going to be okay. And so as we think about the uh, situation Before Isaiah, the people are in exile, and they are they are lonely. They are downtrodden. They are afraid. It seems that God's distant. They're facing opposition all around, and that's what we've been seeing a lot in Revelation. The people are longing for home. God's made those promises. It may seem at times that He's distant. But he's calling us to listen to him. And so we're going to begin by, by reflecting on God's faithfulness in the past. God calls us in the present to deal with fear by reflecting on his past faithfulness. So let's, let's begin in the first two verses. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock. From which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. So we just closed out. Isaiah 50, that that call to listen, to obey the voice of the servant of the Lord, that we know to be Jesus. And so the next chapter immediately begins with listen. And we're called on this occasion to listen, to reflect on God's past faithfulness. In this case, it's a call in verse 2 to look to Abraham and to Sarah. The command to look to, that's the same one that we find in Genesis 15 when Abraham and Sarah are still childless and time is moving on. They're well past childbearing age and God takes Abraham outside and says, I want you to look at the stars and I want you to think about that. I know you can't number them, but that's what your descendants are going to be like. And Abraham never saw that in his lifetime, but we're told that he believed God. He believed that God could do the impossible. And so now, Isaiah, Jesus through Isaiah, knowing that the audience knows that account in Genesis, knowing that they know that that, that great narrative, they're not called to look at the stars and the heavens at this point. They're called to look back on this episode in their life. They knew these details well. Where God was called from the God called Abraham from the land of Ur to go to a place he didn't know where he would be. Joshua tells us that Abraham's lineage were idolaters. And it's implied that he himself was an idolater. He's called out of idolatry, a land of idolatry, to follow the Lord into the unknown. And we're told throughout Genesis that Abraham at times feared. What was going to happen to him? We see that particularly when they would go into new areas. And you remember how he was so concerned for self-preservation, he was willing to put Sarah's life at risk to save his own life. Because he was afraid he would die at their hands. But Isaiah, in bringing this up, says, think about Sarah in verse 2. She bore you. Now, of course, we know in Sarah's lifetime, she only gave birth to one child, Isaac. It's a miracle. There's no other way to explain her conceiving. And and Jesus, through Isaiah, is saying, you exist because of that. What God did in the past, this miraculous intervention in a hopeless situation... It wasn't just Isaac, it's through Isaac, you exist. Your very existence, people of God, is the direct intervention of God. Now, that's not just true for Isaac and ethnic Israelites who believe, but we're told later in Isaiah that those who belong to God, He created you for His glory. He has intervened in our histories. He has created us. He's given us life. We're adopted into this family through Christ, but we're reminded in this original context, the audience is reminded that was an impossible situation. Abraham was gripped with fear. Sarah, they, they both were wrestling with doubt. And so it's not just, hey, Abraham and Sarah, they were real people, God did this for them. The audience is called, we're called, to to reflect on this. This is not just a children's story, Bible. This is not just a veggie tale. This is reality that we must reflect on. If God did that, and I believe that, that has implications of what he's calling me to do next. As I reflect on his past faithfulness, then I've got to believe that he's going to do something again in the future. And that's exactly what brings us to verse 3. God has done something miraculous in the past. Their very existence depends on this. And in verse 3, notice that word for. that, That word for is a hinge word that says, okay, in light of Sarah and Abraham, if you believe that, for, he says, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Now, we've, we've seen a revelation, and even here in Isaiah 51, that the focus is on uh, God speaking to the people together. This is a corporate concern. But also, as we think about the situation, notice the very fact that Abraham and Sarah are mentioned reminds us that God is concerned about individuals that make up his people. And so there's there's both here. There's that concern for the individual person that's struggling with fear and doubt. But then there's the concern for the people. Uh, Zion, we'll see later, is not just a place, it can also be a people. But when we reflect on God's faithfulness in the past... Um, to individuals, that's, that's helpful for us as we can encourage each other as that corporate people. Uh, Cameron Cole, he's a reformed Anglican, uh, lives in Birmingham, probably about Travis's age. And, um, he wrote a, a very helpful article about this, this issue about reflecting on Abraham and Sarah in Isaiah 51. And he, referenced a, a tragedy in his life where he and his wife lost a young son. And many of you can relate to that that deep, devastating pain of losing a child. And, and in the midst of trying to make sense of all that, they, they came to this passage. And while they didn't know what God was doing, they had to come back and believe, okay, God met them in the midst of uncertainty. He met them in the midst of their inconsistencies and fear. And so Cameron and his wife drew um, comfort and encouragement. They didn't have all the answers in going forward, but they knew that God was faithful in unexpected ways. And Isaiah brings this up as to reflect on a situation that took a long time, that seemed impossible, that seemed hopeless in the life of Abraham and Sarah, because this is what it's going to be like on the way to the ultimate Zion. Because at the the time when the audience heard this, there seemed like no hope to ultimately reach this new Eden, this new garden of Eden. But the longing of every heart would resonate in verse 3, this desire for joy and gladness. Now, of course, Isaiah reminds us that that's, ultimately bound up in God. That's, that, that can't be isolated from him in the, in the ultimate sense because he says that joy and gladness, in verse 3, are connected with thanksgiving. God is being thanked. The song in view here is given to him. In the, in the midst of this, this situation that they were facing in exile, in our Context now is we're like the people in Revelation, waiting for God to, to bring it all to completion. It seems that everywhere we look, there's nothing but wasteland and desolation and no hope. Over in um, the Middle East, in Iraq, there's a, um, it's thought that in southern Iraq, this is where the Garden of Eden once was. Now, I'm not concerned about, you know, whether or not we can prove that or not. But it, the, the reason that is brought up in recent years is because the great irony is in that region where it's thought that perhaps the Garden of Eden was, it is now utter desolate wasteland. For centuries, that area was well watered by tributaries and streams that came from the Tigris River. And, and so this particular area that I'm thinking of now is it was uh, lush and prosperous for a long time. And so livestock uh, flourished there. Uh, fishing industry flourished there. But over the last three years, there's been this massive drought. And the water that came into that area was from an overflow of rainfall into the Tigris has dried up. And so the lake that was once this prosperous area for the fishing industry is now just muddy puddles. Much of the livestock has died off or it's had they've been sold to make ends meet. Many of the little community there have moved on because there was no hope in that area. And so um one this was last fall, one of uh, the families that remained, the uh, husband said, We have been protesting to our government for more than two years and no one is listening we are at a loss as to where to go. Our lives are over. And if you look at, at the photos of the area, it is dry, baked clay where, where life once was, and deep cracks and crevices in that area where there once was life. And that's what's going on here, is the people think about the Zion that they knew, the earthly city of Jerusalem, that's what was left after it was raised and, and the people were exiled. Now we're not facing that in a physical geographic sense today, but if we look at the world around us and we wonder what do we face as God's people, sometimes it seems that we've we're like this this um this former fisherman in this area that we're protesting. But no one seems to be listening. And, and certainly brothers and sisters of ours in Christ around the world can, can say that uh, more definitively than we can today. But perhaps it's something um, you know, more specific that we'll look at later in your lives as individuals. But this is what the, the audience is dealing with. And God knows that his people deal with situations of fear and uncertainty and where he seems distant Sarah tells Abraham, the Lord has kept me from conceiving, and so therefore we're going to go with Hagar. Because God seemed distant, they took the situation to their own hands. And so we're reminded through the servant here that don't do that. Remember, God's ways are sure. They may take a long time, and they may seem utterly hopeless, but that's where God thrives to show himself. And so, as the people are, continued to, are, are continually called to reflect on the past, as they think about the future and dealing with their uh, present fears, in verse 4 it says, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. And that reminds us of, the, of that great promise that God made to Abraham, I'm going to make of you, this aged couple, a great nation. And at this point, you're thinking, okay, the Lord's going to come in and strike down those who have exiled us. But instead of that, the servant instead speaks to another issue that God promised Abraham. It says, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and and for my arm they wait. So yes, God's aware he's made this promise about this great nation, and he knows that. But we're reminded by by these statements here and and elsewhere in Isaiah that when God called Abraham to leave that place of idolatry, it wasn't just to to watch over one people group on another part of the world. That God's plans from the very beginning have been global. And so at that, that call, that moment when he was called to leave, he said, "Through I'm going to bless you, but through you I'm going to bless the nations, the world that comes up throughout um, God's dealing with the patriarchs and matriarchs in Genesis. And this language here in verse 5 of the people's are waiting for my arm. The the people of God, they were the ones that had been given the law at Mount Sinai. And on that occasion, they arrived at Mount Sinai because this arm of the Lord had intervened. The first time we read about the arm of the Lord is when Moses is called at that that moment, the burning bush. And he tells Moses, I established my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land of Canaan. And I have remembered my covenant, and I will deliver you from slavery with an outstretched arm. And over and over again in the Old Testament, we read it time and time again about the arm of the Lord. God, not distant and unconcerned, but God reaching down into the midst of uncertainty and fear, and taking hold of his people. He says in Jeremiah, he reached down and took them by the hand out of Egypt. Only now, the arm of the Lord, it's not immediately reaching down for this nation. The arm of the Lord is has work to do, Around the world, So we're reminded here that even at the very beginning, when God calls Abraham and Sarah and they're dealing with fear and doubt, that God's plans aren't just for this, this couple and their issues and his growing them to trust him. He's ultimately concerned with doing similar things for his people around the world. Throughout the ages, the arm of the Lord intervenes and comes down. So this isn't what they want to hear, perhaps. They don't want to hear about the honor of the Lord going elsewhere. They want His salvation and righteousness to come to Him, to them. And so the thing about that salvation and righteousness throughout Isaiah, that largely involves God setting everything right that's wrong in the world, bringing justice and judgment against the wicked, Ultimately, it's an eternal salvation, and it involves a new heaven, a new earth, a resurrection, the end of grief. And they're, they're wanting that now, and that's understandable. This is the longing of every heart that God would intervene and do these things. And so, as the people are dealing with fear, that, that we see that, that actually comes out now uh, more explicitly in... Uh, this next section. He says in verse 6, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear it like a garment and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me. You who know righteousness... The people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Reminded here that the people are in fact... Uh, Afraid. That comes out for the first time explicitly. That in verse 7, what they're afraid of is the reproach of others. The revilings or insults that come. Abraham was afraid to go forward, to trust God, because what might happen to him physically? At the Exodus, you remember, they came to the Red Sea, and they saw the Egyptians coming. And they said, it'd be better for us to go back into slavery than to die right here at their hands. And the Lord knows that his people fear. There's a couple of things that are particularly encouraging, at least for me, in this. And one is the outcome for the enemies. In verse 8, they'll be eaten up like a moth, like a garment. That's exactly what is said in chapter 50 about the enemies of that servant. The servant who never did anything wrong, who is declared not guilty because he was in fact not guilty. He followed the Lord faithfully. He still faced opposition, but he says, I take comfort in the fact my enemies will be made like this, these garments. They'll be destroyed like moths. And so his enemies, our enemies faced the same end. What he went through, we Go through it May be different circumstances, but he knows, the writer of Hebrews tells us, what it's like to be tested and tempted. He knows what it's like to suffer, and therefore he's able to help us when we face these times of fear. But most encouraging to me is what he says in verse 7, The people in whose heart is my law. Going back to Deuteronomy, Moses tells the Israelites several points. The things that I teach you today, the commandments I give you today, should be on your heart. This concern to internalize God's Word. The the idea of God's Word transforming the human heart. The human heart, we're told throughout Scripture, is, is desperately evil desperately needs God to intervene and transform it. And when we think about this idea of the heart having God's law, until we, we think about Jeremiah 31, when he talks about the new covenant, when Jesus uh, institutes the Lord's Supper he talks about the new covenant, he's talking about Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah 31 says that I'm going to put my law in their hearts and minds. I'm going to give them a new heart. And so I say all that to say is that the people that have a transformed heart, they still struggle with fear on this side of eternity. Notice that. The people who have been transformed from the inside, they still fear. To have God's law in our heart means things from Deuteronomy. Over and over again in Deuteronomy, the people are told, don't fear humans and what they can do to you. Instead, fear the Lord. Isaiah knows that. We see early on in Isaiah, as the Assyrians are coming to take down Jerusalem for their idolatry, Isaiah himself, the Lord says, don't fear what they fear. Instead, let the Lord be your fear. Even a prophet inspired by the Holy Spirit wrestled with that. And so we're reminded today that this is, even for the people of God with transformed hearts, this is our experience as well. And so the Lord knows that. And so, in dealing with our fear in the present, He directs us to His future faithfulness. We've thought about His past faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah, and now we're called to really reflect on the future faithfulness, what He will do to the wicked what he will do in bring about this transformed creation. And he reminds us that it will last forever. Our opponents will perish. The cosmos will be transformed. But God's pledge to his people is forever. So as Isaiah Calls us to think about this. He reminds us again, this is a slow process. He says, Your enemies, the wicked, and verse 8, those that revile you, they're going to go the way of a garment being eaten by moths and worms. That's a slow process. You think about, um, you know, the, the, uh, the moth larvae. They love to seek out garments that have been hidden away in in dark places. Places, ironically, they're 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 intended to preserve and protect something valuable. But when we think about garments that are made particularly out of fur or wool or silk, things that come from animals, that there's a protein there that the um the moth caterpillars like to eat. And they can go unnoticed because they're in these places that are forgotten about. That are in the dark. And Isaiah reminds us that's what's going to be like for them. They are doing everything in their lives to protect themselves. Preserve themselves. But steadily God is bringing them to an end. He will be faithful. So as we think about... Uh, the situation here, this idea of reproach, we, we thought about that a lot in Revelation. The, the culture opposing God's people. And Pastor John has reminded us throughout that series, just our ongoing cultural, um, crisis, disagreements, particularly on issues of sexuality. And, and to be sure, at times when we read articles, we hear things about that, there's a fatigue that builds in after a while. Because it seems like that's all we hear about today on all sides of the issue. But Pastor Johns is us that this particular issue of sexuality is not going to go away. And, and with this discussion, there is a growing reproach towards God's people as we hold uh, to his word. Last uh, November, uh, there was an article in World Magazine, a Christian magazine out of Charlotte, And the writer uh, pointed out that that month marked the 35th anniversary of an article that came out in 1987 by Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen called The Overhauling of Straight America. Basically, thinking in the late 80s, here's a strategy for how we can get this to be accepted, this behavior, this lifestyle, to be accepted as normal, an alternative. And so one of the strategies that's raised is to make the victimizers look bad. Uh, Explicitly, they say, at a later stage of the media campaign for gay rights, long after gay ads have have become commonplace, it will be time to get tough with remaining opponents. To be blunt, they write, they must be vilified. We intend to make the anti-gays look so nasty that average Americans will want to dissociate themselves from such types. So to accomplish this vilification, the writers say, the public should be shown images of ranting homophobes whose beliefs discuss middle America. These images might include bigoted southern ministers drooling with hysterical hatred and to a degree that looks both comical and deranged, and so the writer of this piece in world, Thaddeus Williams, he points out that what's especially uh, tragic about that particular section is that the writers indicate that uh, bigotry and hatred and phobia would be the only possible motivation for disagreeing with them. And yes, while that disagreement certainly remains, uh, we're called in Scripture to speak the truth in love. We're not speaking these things out of bigotry or hatred or phobia. So we're we're seeing this is it's in the news more and more each week. But in the meantime, perhaps your your fear your phobia of human reproach or reviling is as much more um, individual, and that's okay to wrestle with our individual concerns because again, Isaiah. Abraham and Sarah were reminded that God cares about our individual struggles. A book I will will highly commend to you on this is uh, written by a a PCA counselor up in Philadelphia named Edward Welch. Edward Welch wrote a very helpful book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And Edward Welch, like me, is a people pleaser. And he grew up, like I did, worried about what people thought I had friends, he had friends, but still a lot of our behavior was driven by what others thought of us. And so in the opening chapter, he talks about how um, i had always been self-conscious, controlled by what my peers thought or might have thought. And he mentions uh, in his senior year, he was confronted with this in a, in a new uh, way the last day of his senior year. He was up for an award in particular school. He went to, on this closing assembly, the juniors and seniors alone made up 2,000 students. And so he was a Christian at the time, but he was up for an academic award, and he was praying he would not get the award because this was his thought process. He normally sat at the back of the auditorium to avoid any kind of attention or limelight. And he began to think about the real possibility of winning this award, and the the possibility of tripping on his way up to the stage, or walking funny, or coming off uh, as, as some sort of nerd. Um, I didn't have to worry about academic awards. That wasn't the, that was the least of my concerns. Um, maybe yeah, you can relate more to him than I can on that, but. As he prayed about this and he worried about well, what would the deserving candidates think of me. To his initial relief, he was not the guy that got the award. But then he began to worry about, okay, what well, about the people that knew I was up for this? They're going to think I'm a loser now. Now, I'll come back to Edward Welch in a minute. But maybe that's your situation. Maybe you're not facing imprisonment or losing your job or being martyred for the sake of Christ today. But maybe your situation is something like this. What will my family, what will my friends or colleagues think if I take a position that's contrary to that article? for example, I just referenced? Or just in general, you're gripped by fear. God knows this, and he wants to speak to this directly. Those with transformed hearts. He says, come and think about what I've done in the past, what I'm going to do in the future. I'm concerned about your present as well. And so we've seen that, first of all, God calls us in our present fears to reflect on his past faithfulness, his future faithfulness. We deal with that in the present. Next, I want us to see in the present, that should prompt us to pray his word back to him. When we reflect on God's past and future faithfulness, that should impact the way that we pray. He says in verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, the arm of the Lord, awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Rahab here is a, uh, another word for Egypt. Who pierced the dragon. Was it not you who dried up the sea? The waters of the great deep who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. And so the audience here, they've heard this and they say, Yes, we want what you're talking about. We want that Zion free from opposition, free from suffering, full of joy. We want this. We want the arm of the Lord to come down again. This is a cry for deliverance. And so they're agreeing, yes, we believe that our existence is miraculous. We believe that we're descendants of Abraham and Sarah. We believe that God also miraculously intervened in the life of our ancestors in Egypt. And then they say in verse 11, And the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And this, this verse 11 is verbatim with a a verse from Isaiah 35 that John looked at just a few weeks ago. And so they're, they're taking what they've heard recently even. And they're saying, we want this to happen. What they're longing for here is what we're going to see at the end of Revelation. This new Jerusalem where there is no longer death or sorrow or pain. Right now, though, for many of us, it seems like this is this is just unreachable. It seems like all we can think about right now is the, the now, the present fear, the present despondency. But it's going to be a complete reversal one day. If you watched the uh, Georgia-Ohio State game recently, the Peach Bowl. If you're a Georgia fan, you were despondent much of that game. Yesterday, at uh, Presbyterian, I had to sit across from Dean Edson, and we were talking about, you know, on bowl games, you want your team to just come in and just blow them away because when it's a, a nail-bite like that, it's almost a miserable experience. It's heart-pounding, agonizing. But then you remember at the very end, Suddenly, unexpectedly, triumph and victory out of nowhere. And, and Georgia fans were overwhelmed with a sense of joy that was sweeter and more precious than if it would have been a 70 to nothing blowout. That game brought greater joy even than the blowout, I would say, over TCU. That's what it's going to be like for us. The joy that God has promised us will be that much sweeter because he's brought us through the agonizing moments of pain and fear and doubt when he seems distant. But we're going to look and see that he has been with me all the way. And so he closes out by saying in verse 12, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you? That you are afraid of, of man who dies, or the Son of Man who is made like grass, and forgotten the Lord, your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor, when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. Edward Welch, as he reflected on that, that assembly, and he was confronted with the idol he had created in his heart of, of fearing what others thought versus fearing God. He says, the most radical treatment for the fear of man is the fear of the Lord, reflecting on who he is. God must be bigger to you than people are. This antidote takes years to grasp. In fact, it will take all of our lives. And that's exactly what we see here. We must trust, he says, that God and not the enemy is the Almighty. We may not see, we will not see all these things in our lifetime. Isaiah certainly died before all these things have come to bear. John Piper, what am I here is a very bold uh, witness for God's word. He himself admits to fearing what others have thought. And he, he says that verse 12 especially has helped him in dealing with his own fear of He says, people might barge into a meeting. Uh, we might say, who are you? Who do you think you are barging here, in here like that? He says, that's kind of what God is saying here. Who do you think you are to fear others? They're like blades of grass. But for us, maybe you're like me when in our old neighborhood we had a common area behind our fence and for a period of time the HOA had dropped the ball and so no one was, was cutting the grass back in that area. My children at that point were very young, we had a swing set right next to the, the fence. So I thought about that grass and I feared the grass because I knew if someone didn't cut it, that was an imitation of snakes and ticks and all these things. And so we can think about this, the collective around us. And, and, and uh, forget our maker. But God says, you have forgotten who I am. I comfort you. And so the Lord tells us that we won't see death. He has already told us in chapter 26, ultimately this is realized in the resurrection. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says in in closing. He says that Jesus, through death, destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely he helps the offspring of Abraham. For because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those we are being tipped. And he immediately says, therefore, consider Jesus. That's what Isaiah is calling us to do here, to, to reflect on what God has done for us in meeting the offspring of Abraham in their fear. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of what others can do to us. And Jesus entered into our fear. He has defeated death. He has defeated enemies. And he says, as we are on our way to the promise saying, keep your eye on me. Don't forget about me. And that's what we're called to do here before us. To reflect on our maker has created us for himself. And he is supplying our bread as we follow him on the way to Zion. So let's let's close now in prayer. Father, we think about... Um, this grand narrative you have given us in your words, this this plan you have, Lord, of providing a place for your people, for you to take away their fears and, Lord, to transform us from the inside. Lord, we confess that we are often gripped by our present fear. I can be that way. Many of us here are. And so, Lord, would your spirit move us to, to reflect on what you've done for us, not only in... Situations like Abraham and Sarah and the Exodus, but most importantly, what the servant has done for us in coming and taking on this opposition for us. Lord, help us in the midst of our, our grief and our struggles, individually and collectively. Keep us faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.